the second half of my sermon. The first half was the last time I spoke, part one. This is part two, uh, titled The Word Made Flesh. Let me just give you a brief review of what I spoke about last time. I think it will help you understand the flow of this. Point one was because Christ lives in you, he sent you to bear witness about him. Now we understood that John the Baptist wasn't the only one who bears witness about Christ, but every Christian is to be a witness for Christ. That's what the scriptures teach. Now I didn't get into all the ways we bear witness about Christ, that's another sermon. But we are all sent to be a witness for him. And we pray for God to open the doors to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't you know that's what the world needs? Amen. The world, you know that song, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, the world needs Jesus Christ. That's the only solution for the broken world that we're in. Then we looked at point two, because Jesus lives in you, because Christ lives in you. You bring light to a dark, sinful world. John the Baptist wasn't the light, but he reflected the light. We are not the light. We reflect his light. Christ is the light which dispels the darkness in a person's life. The darkness of sin, evil, wickedness covers every single human heart unless Christ shines on it and drives it away. And when that happens, the person who has had the darkness driven out of his own heart now begins to reflect that light to a lost, broken world. Jesus told us that. He says, we are the light of the world. We are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. He said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we we bear witness about Christ and we live godly lives that shine brightly for all to see. That was in a nutshell points one and two when I spoke the last time. Today we will finish with points three and four. Point three, because Christ lives in you, you behold His glory. Now it's one thing to talk about His glory and to sing His glory. We sang it. It was glorious to sing about His glory. But it's another thing to really behold and see His glory and understand it. And then point four we'll look at, because Christ lives in you, He reveals the Father to you. We need a better understanding of our Father who loved us so much that He sent Jesus for us so that we can know Him. Can't know the Father unless you know the Son. But something had to happen for Christ to live in us. Notice all the points. It's because Christ lives in you. Uh, you know, He, he sent you to bear witness. Before, because Christ lives in you, he, you bear light to a lost, dark, sinful world. Because Christ lives in you, you behold His glory. Because Christ lives in you, He reveals the Father to you. But something had to happen for Christ to live in you. So we could bear witness about Him. So we could reflect His light to a lost world. So we could behold His glory and to know the Father. Something had to happen. The Word had to become flesh and dwell among humanity. He became flesh so He could live a perfect life. He could identify with humanity 
and suffer and die on our behalf and be reconciled back to God. And because of that, now Christ lives in us when we behold Christ, when we hold Him, when we receive Him. Now Christ actually dwells in us by His Holy Spirit. And because we've been reconciled back to God, and because Christ lives in us, we have this incredible grace and truth that now permeates our lives. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 18. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. That all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. And yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him. Who believed in his name he gave them the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood not of the will of of the flesh. Nor of the will of man but of God. And that's what we got up to last time. And now we're going to continue here, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we all receive grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God. Who was at the Father's side. He has made known. Him known. Let's pray. Father we thank you. God for this timely word. We thank you that. Your word has relevance to us today. 2000 years later. We thank you that. You became flesh. And dwelt among us. You became flesh. And went to the cross. To suffer and die. To shed your blood. To atone for our sins. And now you don't only. Dwell among us. You dwell in us. Which is the most incredible thing. That we can imagine. So God help this word. To set us free tonight. In Jesus name. Amen. A little story here I'll open up with. There was this very wealthy man who had everything money could buy. The best clothes, mansion, yacht, everything, you name it. He had incredible amounts of money. And one day his conscience began to bother him. Because he realized that everything he had he spent on himself. He had no idea how a poor person lived. Or how they struggled to get one day of food, never mind a week's of groceries. Well, one day he decided to put on tatted clothes and live for a few weeks with the homeless. He wanted to identify with them. And after a few weeks, he became a broken man, filled with compassion for the people he lived with a few weeks. He went on, he put on some decent clothes, and went to the bank and withdrew thousands of dollars. He went back, he identified himself to the homeless people that he was with, and gave the ones he made friends with money and offered them jobs. You see, this man now understood how they lived and felt compassion because he dwelt amongst them. Jesus came to humanity 2,000 years ago. And not only identified with humanity, 
by dwelling with them. But he suffered, he died, so they could be forgiven and set free from something far worse than homelessness. And as a result of being set free from his life and death, that person could now bring the one who set them free to others, so in turn, they can be set free. And here's my proposition, it was the same one as last time, because it's the same sermon. Because Christ lives in you, you bring Christ to the lost world. So let's look at point three, because Christ lives in you, you behold his glory. And let's look at verse 14 again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. Now I literally, seriously. And Pastor Brian and our other elder Patty. Knows that a verse like this. We could preach all night on. It has so much richness in it. The word became flesh. It's the greatest Sign the greatest miracle, the greatest wonder that ever happened in all of God's creation. When I was in my mid-twenties, I came to faith in Christ. One of the things that intrigued me was signs and wonders, because I got saved in a charismatic movement. I believed that if I could witness a miracle, speak in tongues, I'm truly saved. This is what I thought. I needed a sign. All I can say is, what a disappointment. Thank God, in His infinite mercy, He showed me that that's not what I needed to be looking at. Faith is not seeing a miracle and then you know the message is true. It's believing God at His word. And the greatest miracle that ever took place was the incarnation, when God actually took on human flesh. It's what the theologians call the hypostatic union. It's the union of Christ's divine nature and human nature in one person. It's what the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD declared. Jesus as truly God and truly man. And that's what John shows us in the first 14 verses. Jesus is God in human flesh. He made no bones about it. He came out of the gate, said Jesus is God and he's man. He didn't appear to be human as the false teaching of the deists believed. No, he became man without giving up his divinity. Dr. Leon Morris, the great Australian theologian, said, John is clear on deity of the word, but he is just as clear on the genuineness of his humanity. And John MacArthur says this, John's point is clear. God became something He had never been without ceasing to be what he had always been. The word became flesh. The eternal God became man. And that's the miracle I needed to believe in. Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. And even though I didn't personally witness that, the incarnation, because that happened, what, 2,000 years ago? I see its effect in my life and every person that is born again of the Spirit. I see that effect. And this word that was made flesh, it said, dwelt among us, or dwelt among them. I like the the Message Bible. I don't use the Message Bible on a regular basis because it's a very, very loosely paraphrased Bible. And I can't study from that, but I like the way they said this. 
He said, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. (laughs) Dr. Carson said, God has chosen to dwell amongst his people in yet a more personal way. Did he not dwell in the Old Testament with his people, with his saints? Sure he did. But now it's in a more personal way. You and I have the benefit of Christ dwelling in us in a much, much more personal way. The word dwelt, skeno, in Greek means to take up residence, to come to reside, to pitch one's tent, to live in a tent. And there's some background we need here in the Old Testament. God's presence was where? In the tabernacle. When the Israelites wandered in the desert, God commanded Moses to build an ark of the covenant. Remember the ark of the covenant? And build a tent. The ark of the covenant was where God's presence dwelt. And the tent housed it. And later on, of course, there was a more permanent structure than the tabernacle, and that was called the temple. First temple was built under Solomon, of course. And when Jesus was born, his body became the temple where now God's presence dwells. God dwells in the flesh of Jesus. Paul said to the Colossians, for in him the whole fullness of deity, meaning God, dwells bodily. Dr. Gangel said, remember the tabernacle, the center of the camp. It represented the place of the law, the abode of God, the source of revelation, the site of sacrifice, and the focus of worship. Now in the new covenant, Jesus provides all of these. Listen. Jesus doesn't just dwell among us. He dwells in us. We don't have the physical Jesus dwelling among us. He dwelt amongst his people in Israel. But he was crucified and now is not physically present with us anymore. But he sent his spirit to dwell in us. That's how Jesus dwells in you now. Through his spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit as Paul told the Corinthians. The father and son make their home in in you through the spirit. As Jesus told his disciple in John 14. Jesus also told his disciples that the Holy Spirit dwells with you and will be in you. He not only lives in you. That's one thing. But know this. He lives his life through you. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, Paul said. But Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live. I live in the flesh. I'm sorry. The the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. That is absolutely mind boggling. That Christ. The creator of the universe. Lives in me. And lives his life through me. Did it ever hit you all of a sudden? God lives in me? I mean. You look at all of creation. Sometimes I'm out fishing and I, and I see the horizon. I, or from upstate and I see the mountain. I, I, I wonder to myself how vast this universe is. How grand it is. And the one who created it actually lives in me. Wow. And one day. God will permanently tent with his people. Amen. Forever. Let's turn to Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3. 
John said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is at the end of all time. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and this is key, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Forever and ever and ever, you will be in the physical presence of Jesus Christ in his glorified body. We will be with God forever and ever and ever. John also said in the gospel back in our text, he said they saw Jesus' glory who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And as I said before, God's presence with Israel where? Was in the tabernacle. And where his presence is, guess what? There's his glory. You can't divorce his presence from his glory. In Exodus uh, verse 40, I'm sorry, chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The cloud of God's presence settled on the tabernacle, and his glory filled it. When the prophet Isaiah saw the heavenly vision of the Lord in the temple, he saw and heard the seraphim angel saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his holiness. Did he say that? Did he say that? No. He said the whole earth is filled with his glory. Do you know whose glory Isaiah saw? He saw Christ. 700 years before it actually happened, he saw Christ's glory. As a matter of fact, if you read John's Gospel, it tells us that Isaiah saw Christ's glory uh, in the 12th chapter. And when the Word became flesh, the glory of God was not limited now to just the temple. No, wherever Jesus went, the glory of God went because he was with God. He was God in human flesh. God's glory is seen in His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus' glory was now in the midst of His people. And I think that's what John was talking about. First, what is God's glory? I could preach on this for a long time, but I'm just going to give you a snapshot of what God's glory is without going to the Hebrew word kabod. Many of you know that word. And the Greek word doxa in the New Testament. The Old Testament word kabod in the Greek uh, New Testament doxa. In a nutshell, God's glory is the weightiness, the seriousness, or the importance of his infinite character. In other words, it is God's supreme majesty, his infinite holiness, his sovereignty, his righteousness, his divine attributes, his divine works. That is his glory. It's a revelation of God. It's a manifestation of this great God. Well, then how did John and the others see Christ's glory before Jesus was resurrected back to life? They saw it in his attributes. They saw it in his preaching. They saw it in his teaching. They saw it in his works, his miracles, his love, his truth, his wisdom. However, even though they saw God's glory through Jesus' works, it was veiled by his humanity. They saw glimpses of it. But they did get a sneak preview on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus... Heavenly glory shone through the veil of his flesh. Remember that in Matthew 17? He went on the mount of transfiguration. He went on the mountain and, 
And his glory shone through. He was with Moses and Elijah. And it says his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became dazzling white. He gave the apostles a sneak preview of his glory. In a physical sense. And at his return. Every one of us who are Christians. And I believe even those who are not Christian. Will see Jesus shrouded in heavenly glory. Brighter than the sun. Revelation tells us that in heaven, the new Jerusalem, there will be no need for sun or moon to give light because the glory of God will will give it light. Listen to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 to 24. And John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun nor moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. I mean, that's incredible. We are not going to have sun. We are not going to have moon. It's, it's incredible. You know, today we have, in the Old Testament times, they had what? They had candles to bring light, they had torches. Now we have incandescent light bulbs. But that's becoming obsolete anyway. But now we have the new ones, the compact fluorescent lights. And we have LED lights. That's my favorite. LED lights save a lot of money. You know, it's, it's energy savers. Um, and and, and, and we, don't, we have um, natural light, the sun and the moon. But, in, but the light in all eternity, think about this, is the glory of God through the lamp, Jesus Christ. The greatest glory both the Father and Son can display, guess what? Is in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's his greatest glory. Let's read John 17.1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. This is right before his crucifixion. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. The hour was the hour of his death. His death would redeem countless sinners and bring glory to God the Father for his redemptive work and and, and and for his son to complete obedience to the Father that completed the work of redemption. Incredible. Jesus' ultimate goal in life was not so much to save you and me, was to bring glory to His Father and obey His will. Yes, it was, and that's the Father's ultimate goal, was to save us. But Jesus came to earth to glorify God. And John says that the glory they saw in Christ was God's glory. Why? Because Christ and God, the Father, are one. John 10.31 And and when it says in verse 14, we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son. That's that's key. The only Son from the Father. This shows us that Jesus is unique. in, In that He came from the Father and is equal to the Father and has the same glory as the Father. So Jesus is unique. No religion in the world can compare to Jesus Christ. You, and, and you can't mix other religions or, or put other religions in the same level as Christianity. You can't. Gerald Borchert says, the uniqueness of the Son makes it impossible for Christianity to be, be, to be a syncretistic religion. You know what syncretistic means? It means uh, the blending or combining of different religions, different cultures or thoughts or schools of thought. In other words, 
You could say, well, in the first century, you could say, well, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is Lord. Or you can say, uh, uh, Jesus and Buddha are equal. Or you can say, Jesus and, Man- and, and Muhammad are equal. Absolutely not. It's Jesus and only Jesus. Some of you may have seen the bumper stickers over the years, coexist. How many of you have, have ever seen that? Coexist. It, it, it has the syncretism of all the major, major religions of the world. The, the saying, this saying is all religions are equal. And we exist together and all roads lead to heaven. If you're a Buddhist, if you're a Muslim, or if you're a Christian, it doesn't matter. And that's a lie. And there's only one way according to Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 14 verse 6. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That is not a syncretistic saying. That's an exclusive one-way-to-heaven declaration. Also, we need to point out that the glory of God seen in Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. Why does everyone not see the glory of Christ? Why does everyone not see the grace of Christ and the truth of Christ? Because only through the eyes of faith can anyone see it, as Dr. Carson said. When we truly believe, we can say with John, we have seen his glory, glory as as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. First we need to understand that, full of grace and truth. Grace. God's grace is demonstrated by His love, His goodness. And His truth is demonstrated by His faithfulness. The Old Testament writers many times refer to God's love and faithfulness, which is equivalent to John's statement that the incarnate Word, Jesus, is full of grace and truth. So let's talk about grace first. Jesus is full of grace. Grace is how you're saved. It's God's love for you that saved you. It's not anything inherently good that God saw in you that he saved you. It was purely from his loving, kind grace that he saved you. Paul describes it as the gospel of grace. Ephesians 2.8 says it clearly. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a, the result of works. That why? So no one can boast. We're not going to go to heaven and say, hey God, I accepted you. Hey God, it was my will. No. Jesus is full of this grace. He obeyed his father and went to the cross. And now this grace is available to those who receive him. Jesus is not only full of grace, but truth as well. Truth, as John describes it, is much more than a true statement. You know, we we could all make true statements. But truth is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the truth, as well as the way and the life. And he's completely, completely reliable. Now I can look at some of you and say, you are a person of integrity. I can look at my brother-in-law Brian, and Pat Mack with the eldership, and I can say, they are persons of integrity, they are persons of, of honesty, but even the most truthful person I know cannot be completely reliable because we all have shortcomings. The kind of truth John's speaking about here cannot be apart from Christ. We should also notice that John does not 
divorce grace from truth. We, we cannot experience the salvation of grace unless we believe the truth. The gospel of grace is truth. Paul called the gospel the word of truth. And Jesus is full of this grace and truth. He was also full of grace and truth that it emanated out of his life. That everyone who was seeking God would see it. Why didn't the Pharisees see it? Because they never looked at it through the eyes of faith. Because their hearts were hardened. Is it possible that the Pharisees could actually see Christ raising someone from the dead and still not believe and still not experience his grace and truth? Yeah. But those who had the eyes of faith, those who had right hearts with God saw this grace and truth. It's no different today, by the way. You could raise a dead person right up in front of somebody. They still won't believe. He was so full of grace and truth that it emanated out of his life. And everyone saw it. They would see his glory that was full of grace and truth. Not only do you experience grace and truth, but you, as a Christian, are conduits of God's grace and truth. You are like a water main pipe where the water flows through the pipe from a reservoir to the faucet. God's pure grace and his truth flow through you to this lost world. And this grace, on the other hand, was in abundance. It was a continuous grace. Let's look at verse 16. We're going to skip over 15 because I spoke about John the Baptist's witness and covered the verse 15 last time. When I spoke that in point one. The next time I preach we will continue. Uh, John the Baptist witness in verse 19. Verse 16. He says from his fullness. We have all received grace. Upon grace. Our blessings come from Christ continually. It's like when I'm at the surf fishing. Waves flow in one after the other. That's like God's grace in our lives, one after the other. Blessing after blessing flowing over us. Grace to save us. Grace to grow us. Grace to usher us into eternity. Grace to help us to enjoy God forever and ever. Jesus said he came to give us life and have it abundantly. And that's grace upon grace upon grace. All the religions of the world demand something from you. They want you to give something to God. They demand resources from your goodness. Even though you're bankrupt. The well is empty. You have nothing in your well. It's empty. There's nothing there. But Jesus said from his fullness. Come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you eternal life. I will give you an abundant life. I will give you peace. I will give you the Holy Spirit. What did God say in Isaiah 55.1? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the rivers, uh, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then he said, in, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, listen, if you realize your spiritual bankruptcy, you're in a position to become spiritually rich and to receive grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It'll never end. It'll never end. I'm 40 years in the Lord. I never... His, his grace is every day in my life. It never ceased. 
The well never runs dry from His grace. Never. And it will never end. On the other hand, no one receives saving grace from obeying the law. Let's look at verse 17. Where does the time go? For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law here, John is probably referring to the first five books of the Old Testament. Which is called the Pentateuch. Which includes the Ten Commandments. It's not the law, meaning our adherence to it, that can save us. Now, is John saying anything bad about the law here? No, the law is holy. The law is righteous. The law is good. Paul tells us that in Romans 7. He tells us that in 1 Timothy It shows God's holiness and righteousness and perfection. That's grace. But no one gets eternal life from obeying it because no one has ever fully obeyed the law. Even though some people think they have, no one has. And John is not putting attention here between the law of God, which was given through Moses, and grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ. He wasn't putting attention there. John doesn't say, for the law was given through Moses, but... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No, he says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, if I may paraphrase Drs. Beale and Carson, John is presenting Jesus as the final climatic revelation of God's covenant love and faithfulness. So he's not saying the law was void of grace. He's saying, listen, this is the climatic grace found in Christ. How? How does the law have grace? Well, it shows us the holiness of God. It's it's the law that shows us the depth of our sin. It's the law that actually points us to Christ. Did you know that? The law points you to Christ. If you want to know what was the purpose of the law, it pointed you to Christ. Listen to Paul in Galatians chapter 3 verse 24. He says, so then the law was our guardian, or some versions say a tutor, or a schoolmaster, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. The law, you see, the law shows us our sin, and points us to Christ. Thank God for the law. Martin Luther said, with its whippings, the law draws us to Christ. (laughs) The law was our guardian, or our tutor. And it regulated the sinner's life until Christ came. And now, the sinner is justified by faith in Christ. Paul tells us that the law is actually, the glory was fading from the law. In 2 Corinthians 3. But Christ's glory is displayed through His grace. The glory of the new covenant of grace will never fade. Matter of fact, if I may be bold enough to say this, it's not going to get any stronger. Christ, the glory of the new covenant is... But it will increase in our lives as we realize it more and more. We more and more realize that His glory that will never fade. You know, as Christians, we behold His glory. We, we, we read the scriptures about Christ and, and see the glory of Him in the scriptures. We look at the work of Christ that He's done in the person's life. I could look at all of you and, and see the glory of Christ... Because of the work that he's done in your heart. 
Uh, we, we see the faith God has put in our hearts and we glorify the Son of God. We experience the love of the Father and we glorify God. We see the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives every day. And what do we do? We glorify God. You know, this is a story. I'm not going to tell you the whole story because it's just way too lengthy. But I, when I first got saved, there was a transvestite. She, uh, he had the sex change operation. And... Um, Someone had called me up and said, would you mind talking? He called himself Renee. Would you mind talking to Renee because she's either going to kill herself or commit suicide. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, commit suicide or, or have a nervous breakdown. So I spoke to her about the Lord. I'm giving you the short end of the story. I spoke to her about the Lord. And he came to faith in Christ. He was a totally transformed person. He went to a Bible study which is my Bible study, and when he went back to work, people were saying to him, you're glowing, you're, you're changed, there's something different about you. It was the glory of Christ emanating out of his life. Yeah. Two weeks later, she was murdered. What she, she may have, he, may have destroyed the body, but God saved his soul. Praise the Lord. In heaven, there's neither male nor female. Amen. One day I'll tell you the long version of this, or the, the normal version of the story. We see or behold Christ's glory in his work, in us or others. But the glory belongs to him alone. Amen. The reformers declared, Soli de gloria. For the glory of God alone. Amen. Point three. Because Christ lives in you. You behold his glory. Point four. Because Christ lives in you. He reveals the father to you. Verse 18. <clears throat> no one has ever seen God. The only God. Who was at the father's side. He has made him known. No one. John is saying no one has ever seen God. The appearance of God. In the, uh, in the Old Testament which was called Theophanies, was very limited. Even Moses, who asked to see God, only saw his back and his goodness in Exodus 33. F.F. Bruce said Moses saw, so to speak, the afterglow of a divine glory. Uh, nobody saw his full glory. Why could not everybody see his full glory? Because in our sinful state, if we ever saw the full blazing glory of God, we drop dead right on the spot. We could never stand in the presence of God in our sinfulness. <clears throat> Not only because he's a spirit, but because he's just so holy and righteous. So that's why no one has ever seen God, except the only God who's at the Father's side, which speaks of Jesus, the one and only unique Son. And I think... The NIV version of the Bible captures the understanding of this verse well. If we could put that up there. Verse 18, the NIV. <laughs> I have it on there. Okay, well, I'll just read it. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. From all eternity, Jesus was with the Father in the closest possible relationship. 
And so he's the only one who is capable of revealing the Father to us. And you know, when the Bible says he has made him known, it comes from a certain Greek word. And, and it means to describe, to make known, to explain. It's where we get our English word exegesis, which is an explanation or interpretation of the biblical text. And that's what pastors and teachers of the word of God are supposed to do, the exegete, the passage. So, you know, I don't have any respect for a pastor or a a teacher of the word that doesn't exegete the word before he comes up and preaches or teaches. So, and and they they come up and they make it known. They explain. They explain thoroughly. Jesus has made the the Father known to the believer. Jesus is the only one who can explain God God to you and to make him known. He's the only one who can exegete God to you and make him known to you. Jesus Christ reveals God the Father to you. As I said the last time, do you want to know God? Do you really really want to know God? Know his son, Jesus Christ. That's the only way to know him. Jesus said, you honor me, you honor my father. You dishonor me, you dishonor my father. That's why all the religions of the world... No matter how good it looks on the outside, if they don't know the Son, they can't possibly know God. You may remember Jesus told Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The writer of Hebrews tells us, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Paul told the Colossian church, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And Paul also said, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Do you want to know the Father? Know the Son. Jesus explains the Father to us. Jesus reveals the Father to us. And when you know the Son, you know the Father. And you could call the Father Abba. That's what Jesus called his Father, Abba. You know what that word means? It's an intimate Aramaic word. Sometimes my son, I, I call him up and he goes, Papa. That's what it means. Papa, Daddy. It's a very intimate. And when you get to know the Father, some people don't know him like that. Some people fear God, the Father. Jesus doesn't want us to fear his Father. He wants us to know the Father and be able to go and sit on his lap and say, Pop, Dad. I want to tell you my heart today. Amen. And you could do it without fear. God. Let me conclude here. So where on earth can you get these kind of benefits from any religion than you could get from a relationship with God through Christ? You know any religion? I mean, you get to bear witness about Him. That's a privilege in and of itself. You're an ambassador for the Savior. Other religions have ambassadors. But I suspect that their representation is out of fear rather than out of their love for God. We, on the other hand, represent our Savior out of deep love for Him. Urging people to be reconciled to God. Our witness is God through us. And here's our witness. Be reconciled to God. That's what you tell people. In, in, however God leads you to say that. Two, 
You reflect the light of Jesus Christ to a lost, pitiful, broken world. Three, you behold His glory. You truly see Jesus' glory through the Spirit's working in your life and others. You experience continuous grace and truth. And four, you get to know the Father. Where do you get benefits like that? Because the Word became flesh and died and rose again. That's why we have those benefits. If you can find one in all the religions of the world, let me know and I'll look into it. But you can't because there is none. All the religions, in essence, say this. Do or die. Jesus says, come to me, I already did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you live in us. You actually live in us. You became flesh. You dwelt among us. You suffered and died on the cross. You rose back to life. You ascended into heaven. And you sent your Holy Spirit into the believer's heart, into our hearts. And you're forever with us. You said, I will be with you until the end of the age. You will be with us forever and ever. We thank you, Father, that we can bear witness for you that we're the light now we emanate, light emanates out of us. And we thank you, God, that we behold your glory. We always behold your glory in the preaching of the word, in people's lives when they come to faith in Christ. And we thank you, Father. We thank you, Jesus, for revealing your Father to us. That we can say, with you, Jesus, Abba, Father. Bless your people. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen.